Perhaps you remember school sports days. Usually the prizes weren't handed out straight away, but only when all the races were finished. If you'd run well and were in line for a prize, you still had to watch all the remaining races and hopefully feel generous enough to cheer the others on. It seems it was like that at the early Olympics too. One Bible expert writes of these gymnastic games, the most imposing form was presented at Olympia, where games were celebrated in honour of Jupiter once every five years. An almost incredible multitude from all the states of Greece and from the surrounding countries attended these games as spectators. The noblest of the Grecian youths appeared as competitors. The victors in the morning contests did not receive their prizes till the evening, but after their exertions joined the band of spectators. Why are we mentioning this? Well, it's because we want to come to Hebrews chapter 12 today, which begins like this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Who formed this surrounding cloud of witnesses? Surely it's the list of worthies already mentioned in chapter 11. Men like Abraham, Noah, Moses, and many other unnamed heroes of faith. But in what sense were they witnesses? It's attractive, although debatable, to think of the ancient worthies whose actions are recorded in Scripture as now being represented as spectators, their deeds and sufferings and triumphs as recorded in Scripture being calculated to have the same influence on the minds of the believing Hebrews as the interested faces of the surrounding crowd had on the minds of the Greek combatants, the crowd which had included earlier victors now awaiting their prizes. Of all the encouraging examples, however, the Lord Jesus is the greatest, called here the chief example, that's the meaning of author, and now the writer identifies himself with these early Hebrew Christians in the first churches of God and calls upon them to fix their eyes on Jesus. This matter of seeing the Lord is something we'll return to later in our look at this chapter, but it does require the perfecting of holiness in our lives, and that in turn takes discipline. This is the next theme, continuing the imagery of the athlete in training, but blending it with the picture of a child being corrected by its parent. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. So the discipline we receive is so that we may be trained to share his holiness. We are not to regard it lightly or faint under it, but allow ourselves to be trained by it. The next verse seems to have in view the limbs of the athlete under training, when it says, Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, 
and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. The Christian, pictured as an athlete, is encouraged to get with the training programme. It's all about how we respond to the discipline that's intended to train us in holiness or in the sanctification necessary in order for us to see the Lord, to fix our eyes on him and so to avoid dropping out of the race. Some of these early Jewish Christians were on the verge of dropping out. Taking up the dramatic case of Esau, the writer warns them, and this is now the fifth major warning of the letter, when he warns them of what's at stake if they should abandon the race. See to it, he says, that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. What a price Esau paid for his hasty bargain. He allowed physical gratification, which was only for a moment, to outweigh a lifetime's testimony and the right to be an ancestor of the Messiah. These first century Hebrew Christians needed to avoid a similar disaster. Would they forfeit the blessings of their spiritual birthright all for the sake of the temporary appeal of Judaism? That would be behaviour every bit as profane as Esau's. But what special birthright blessing does the writer go on to mention? It's a blessing he's been building up to while stressing the need for training or discipline. For it's a blessing that demands holiness. For this is the blessing of seeing the Lord. But it's not meaning seeing the Lord when we die, not even in our quiet times of communion over the word of God. No, it's seeing the Lord on Mount Zion while engaged in collective worship as a holy nation for God on this earth. This is a most sacred blessing. Little wonder the writer of this letter to the early Hebrew Christians was so insistent they mustn't miss out on it by settling for some profane alternative. Like spiritual athletes, they needed holiness training so as to focus on the Lord if they were to be fully aware of this highest privilege of God's holy nation, which they were viewed as forming across all the New Testament churches of God. The sheer wonder of the privilege is now brought home to them by the writer. He drew on their Jewish Old Testament background. He reminded them of the awesome holiness of Mount Sinai, where their forefathers were brought by Moses to meet God. He says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. So we're even told something there which we can't discover from the full story of the event in the book of Exodus, which is that even Moses was intimidated by the experience. And if that historical experience had really been so awesome, and it must have been, 
How much more awesome is the reality which the Bible describes as being the spiritual counterpart to their national experience at Sinai? The writer now emphasises the contrast. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. There's so much to take in there that you'll need to go and look it up for yourself in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 22. What holy boldness is ours through that blood? I say ours, but we need to check if we really do correspond to those to whom this Bible letter was originally addressed. They were fellows of Christ, sharers of a heavenly calling, spoken of as forming God's earthly house, having received a kingdom. In Christ's teaching to his disciples, we find that it was to them that the kingdom of God was to be transferred, and equally the status of being a holy nation. Elsewhere in the New Testament, disciples of Christ serving the Lord in churches of God in different localities, but all bound together in the one overall fellowship. They are described as being a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. When they functioned in this capacity at the breaking of the bread, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 speaks about them as worshippers entering into the holy place. And quite unmistakably in its context, this is somewhere in heaven. And so it's a spiritual experience which answers to what we are now looking at in Hebrews chapter 12. Well, in this series, we've been tracing warning after warning in this letter to the Hebrews. Warnings delivered to Jewish Christians who were under pressure to abandon the Messiah they'd embraced by faith, namely Jesus, and turn their backs on the community of New Testament churches of God by returning to the old ways of Judaism again. Alongside these warnings, as we've seen, runs an appeal, running right through this letter, which is basically about showing what they'd be missing out on if they fell away from the service of God's people in these churches. They would miss out on drawing near to God and entering his presence in heaven while worshipping on earth. Nowhere else in the Bible tells us about this. This is the amazing disclosure contained in the letter to the Hebrews. It's touched on so often that it's unmistakable. The clear implication is that if our way of service today equates with the same pattern of God's word, we can claim this promise too. If you'd like to be sure of this, do contact us. We're here to help you as your servants for Jesus' sake.